Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. This is technical producer Will Erskine. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast and share it around. On today's show, you will find conversations about the vaccine rollout in Ontario, the challenges faced by Canada's frontline workers in long-term care facilities and nursing, and the World Health Organization's impending probe into the origins of the novel coronavirus. Now, throughout the show, Scott continued to check in on developing events in Washington, D.C., and he covered this historic day in the U.S. with Professor Graham Dodds as the Capitol building was stormed. It's all coming up now on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Several several Ontario mayors have banned together to ask homeowners to keep their Christmas lights up. What was once considered tacky is now fashionable. I love it. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, man. Good work. You blocking out? My wife says I'm deaf, but I certainly heard that. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We'd love to hear from you and how you're doing on this uh, January 6th. Uh, it's true what he said about the Christmas lights. Uh, I believe it's uh, Mayor of, of uh, KW that started this going. I could be wrong there. And uh, it, it sort of has, has picked up uh, steam on social media. And and oddly enough, my wife and I were talking about this a, a while back as we got them up quite early this year. And uh, I guess they're saying keep them on through January just to get us through those uh, dark days of, uh, of winter and such. So uh, not a bad idea. All right. Uh, as I mentioned, feel free to jump into the conversation. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there. You can also send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 uh, on your cell. Lots of stuff to watch today. Uh, what is happening uh, in the United States. Can we play a piece of this, Will? This is uh, happening right now. Uh, Donald Trump is uh, rallying in Washington and uh, uh, just refuses to, uh, to concede and uh, admit defeat to Joe Biden. Here's just a sample of what's going on. They rigged it like they've never rigged an election before. And by the way, they didn't do a bad job either, if you notice. I'm honest, and, and I just, again, I want to thank you. It's a, just a great honor to have this kind of crowd and to be before you and hundreds of thousands of American patriots who are committed to the honesty of our elections and the integrity of our glorious republic. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. All right. That's uh, President Donald Trump in Washington right now. Uh, and uh, obviously in Georgia, it's uh, looking right now like uh, one uh, Democratic senator has made it. Uh, the other two close to call at this time, although some are uh, already claiming victory there for the Democrats uh, in the Senate, which will obviously change a lot of things. Uh, south of the border, that's for sure. Uh, anyway, uh, it, it's frightening to hear uh, a president say what he's saying and trying to uh, to, to rally uh, those that, um, despite, for example, Georgia being counted three times, uh, once initially, twice for a, a second time for a recount, and the third time at the president's request. I mean, how many, you know, where's the proof? Where's the proof? How many times can you do this before you either, you you accept defeat? I mean, it's... It's like playing sports. The person with the most goals or points at the end wins. That's just the way it is. Uh, anyway, we'll continue to watch that story uh, throughout the course of the afternoon and talk about it a bit later after uh, Premier Doug Ford's news conference coming up at 1 o'clock. All right, let's move on and talk about uh, vaccinations and where we are as of this January 16th. Um, 
earlier news reports uh, talking about how slow Canada has been in its uh, implement, uh, implementation of this vaccine, getting it out of the freezers and into uh, the arms of Canadians, uh, a situation that they're having pretty much uh, across the country. Uh, that being said, uh, Ontario is saying today that uh, some of its uh, sites are reporting that they are at the end of their doses or will be by today or tomorrow and are receiving more coming in uh hopefully within uh, the next week or so and uh, are nearing the end of the supply so um you know again I, th- I think a lot of people are doing the best they can to get this stuff uh in the arms of canadians and uh, we're already starting to see things pick up just a little bit on that note uh the premier has indicated that all long-term care residents uh, staff in toronto peel york and windsor uh, will be vaccinated by uh, January 21. Uh, also hearing reports that um, uh, the union has announced that uh, paramedics will also uh, be in line for that vaccination uh, by the 21st as well in those hotspots. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Amit Arya, a palliative care physician specializing in long-term care and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, yes. Um, glad to be on the show. So your thoughts on where we are, uh, first let's talk about vaccinations, getting them into arms. Uh, many have been concerned about the speed in which the provinces have been able to do this. Your thoughts on that? We understand that it has greatly picked up in the last 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, it is picking up and I'm encouraged by that. But just a reminder to the listeners that, I mean, this is day 23 that we've had the vaccine. We still have close to 90,000 doses, 60% of, you know, these vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine sitting in these freezers as we continue to have like these record hospitalization numbers, um, you know, record, um, you know, uh, you know, people's, um, you know, admitted to uh, ICU with COVID-19 and specifically with long-term care. I mean, we're in the middle of a humanitarian disaster. Uh, in the last week, the seven-day average of deaths in long-term care has doubled, and this has tripled since the beginning of December. Um, you know, today our province uh, has this dubious sort of distinction where we crossed, uh, you know, a thousand deaths, a thousand deaths in just the second wave of, uh, of of COVID-19 in long-term care alone. We have exploding outbreaks across the province. So, I mean, the sluggish rollout and this pause over the Christmas weekend and not being ready with these community teams with refrigerated trucks rolling out to all long-term care homes will cost lives and i mean even the you know the you know the current plan that was announced by the ministry just yesterday after 22 days is is not enough because it only goes to uh you know a percentage of the long-term care homes where whereas we need to vaccinate all the residents as many health workers and family caregivers as soon as possible uh, that being said, Ontario announcing today that they are nearing the end of their vaccine supply and reporting that some sites could be out of doses by today or tomorrow as they greatly speed this up. So uh, at the end of the day, by the end of the week, should the country be in reasonably good shape in your mind? Well, we still have a ways to go, right? Especially with long-term care, where we've had 70% of the deaths um, you know, from COVID-19. I mean, that I, I think we would all agree that has to be the priority. And um, although I'm seeing some encouraging signs, I can tell you that in some large urban settings like Toronto, we have the University Health Network rolling out these vaccine te- uh, you know, teams that are actually going from home to home. And, you know, really, and it, it, it is a race against time and they are doing an amazing job. But in other places where perhaps uh, there are not, uh, you know, uh, robust relationships between hospitals and long-term care homes, you know, we're seeing the the rollout is a lot slower. And, you know, we have to really think, uh, you know, to be honest, Scott, of each one of these long-term care homes as hotspots and, simi- you know, just, uh, you know, committing to delivering the vaccine in specific areas like Peel or Toronto is is just not good enough. I mean, just in Hamilton, for example, we have several homes in outbreak right now, St. Joseph's Villa, Grace Villa, you know, Shalom Village uh, Nursing Home. And it's very important that we get everyone vaccinated as soon as possible. Uh, now that the Moderna vaccine has arrived on our soil, obviously we know the, the logistical concerns around the Pfizer vaccine and, and people had to come to it as opposed to it going to uh, the, uh, the, the people who need it, which, which obviously kept it to uh, staff and such uh, emergency care workers, that sort of thing, frontline workers. Now that the Moderna is here, uh, how much is easier should that be to get the, these into the arms of those in, in long-term care? homes or nursing homes? 
Yeah. So respectfully, actually, I mean, the policy of keeping the Pfizer vaccine in hospitals and, as you mentioned, having frontline health workers from long term care going from long term care to the hospital or having hospital workers vaccinated first was a flawed one. When I talk to my colleagues who are infectious disease experts, uh, actually scientists who, you know, specialize in vaccines and so on. I mean, everyone kind of agrees. And it's actually been on the product on the product monograph for the Pfizer vaccine that it can be kept at normal refrigerator temperatures for five days before administration. Administration. Uh, other jurisdictions like Quebec and definitely other countries around the world have been taking the Pfizer vaccine, therefore, into uh, long-term care homes. So that's really what this province should have done. I mean, they should have had refrigerated trucks, um, you know, rolling in, like, you know, ro- like rolling out across the province to get as many people vaccinated as soon as possible. Now, that being said, I, I, I do agree with you, Scott, at this point in the game. I mean, you know, the Moderna vaccine is, is here and more of it will arrive. So, I mean, there's no excuse, right? We need to get, uh, you know, as many of Ontario's 72,000 residents uh, across the, you know, close to 630 long-term care homes vaccinated as soon as possible. From what I understood, Dr. Pfizer had just given approval for those to be transported that way. Initially, it was you had to have this sort of logistical infrastructure in place before you could even receive the vaccination. And then dealing from outside of those hotspots that that approval has just come. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's news to me. I mean, uh, as I said, I mean, British Columbia is another jurisdiction uh, in addition to Quebec, uh, which is just next door to us, where they really started by getting the Pfizer vaccine into um, seniors' arms in long-term care homes, uh, you know, itself. So, I mean, this delay, unfortunately, at this time is, is definitely going to lead to future suffering and death. So, I mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not an expert with, uh, you know, vaccines or infectious diseases colleagues, but I do speak to, you know, many of my colleagues who do specialize in these fields. And really everyone, you know, was in agreement that this should have been done from the get go. Um, and, and not to play political uh, theater here, doctor, but you kept you keep referring to this province, this province. Uh, that being said, as of yesterday, the numbers we had, Alberta was leading uh, the per capita uh, race on I- injecting people with having point five two percent of the population. Uh, Ontario is at uh, 0.3% of the population. Is really the message here how poorly Ontario is doing or the fact that none of the provinces across the country are really doing it well at all? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Right. I mean, I, I can tell you that, uh, I mean, you know, we know that, I mean, especially when it comes to long term cares, you know, we're not all affected by the virus the same. Uh, you know, it's seniors in long term care um, who are affected the most. And, you know, even now we're seeing across the country, especially in Ontario, um, you know, we're seeing these uh, you know horrific conditions in many long term care facilities where it's not just people that are dying from, um, you know, COVID-19 itself, but because COVID-19 really you know, decimates through the staff and leads to these horrible staffing shortages. We're hearing of these, you know, really these human rights violations where people don't have food and water. They're they're not receiving basic care and hygiene. So, I mean, there's many, it's it's sort of a complicated, uh, you know, story. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be done to prevent those situations. But, you know, one of the things that we have right now sitting in freezers is this vaccine. So, of course, as as someone who works on the front lines of long-term care homes and has actually seen some of the devastation that COVID-19 can cause, Uh, during this pandemic, I mean, I I always ask myself, well, why are we holding on to this vaccine? And why did we not have a plan, which was not hospital based, but rather engaged community health workers, people who give the vaccine year in and year out, like, or, you know, people who give vaccines, like the influenza vaccine, family doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, why did we not have these teams ready to go 24 seven to get to every long term care home uh, as soon as possible? And what are your thoughts on the doses? Because Health Canada has obviously uh, uh, prescribed that this uh, that the second dose be held back, and that you wait 21 days to to yep. administer the second. Some have said that they believe you should just you know immunize or vaccinate rather as many people as you can possibly do, and then just wait for the second batch to come in and then hit them. Uh, your 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 thoughts on on strategy there. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, definitely, uh, you know, I would defer, you know, expertise on this to my colleagues who, you know, specialize in infectious diseases. But from what I hear from them, uh, definitely, uh, once again, we're in, a, in the middle of a public health emergency. Uh, as, as I mentioned, we've crossed, uh, you know, a thousand cases, uh, sorry, a thousand deaths uh, from COVID-19 in long-term care during the second wave alone. Uh, and really, we're, we're seeing these humanitarian crises uh, across our long-term care homes. So this is actually a matter of speed. It's actually a matter of life and death and it's actually you know a race against time i mean i can tell you personally on a personal level that i've seen people uh you know die from covid19 within hours in long-term care facilities so really you know a delay of a day or two days could actually cause people to die so this is very important and although we know that the first dose uh, would not offer as much of a robust protection as getting two doses i mean it's better than just having it in the freezer uh, your thoughts on where we will be by January 21st? Well, right now, I mean, yesterday the province, you know, announced this plan, which uh, specifically for long-term care, they were planning to vaccinate, um, you know, residents and staff in Toronto, Peel, York, and Windsor, Essex, um, you know, which they, which are, you know, are sort of the hotspot uh, sort of areas. But I wanted to remind everyone that once again, long-term care, really, we need to think of every long-term care home as a hotspot. I mean, specifically, I can tell you in Niagara region, I was reading that, you know, they have 25 long-term care homes in, in you know, in outbreak. So it just doesn't make sense that you know we're not trying to meet these targets in Niagara in Hamilton and really in every long-term care home across the province it, it actually is, is wrong and I'll be honest with you when people are suffering and dying today I mean you know to sort of even say that we're going to wait you know three weeks to have this life-saving you know sort of vaccine you know get out is is not right I mean they need to put all their resources together and use all their power and energy to get this rolling out as soon as possible and I'll add one more point that I mean one thing that I'm seeing from my experiences and sort of talking to health workers who are on the front lines in long-term care um, I'm I am seeing some you know troubling sort of concerns about vaccine hesitancy specifically with frontline health workers Hmm. where what are your thoughts on that doctor yeah yeah so specifically I can tell you um, that, um, you know, in order for us to achieve maximal uh, uptake of this whole, like, you know, logistical operation of, you know, involving shipping, involving storage of the vaccine, and then rolling it out to long-term care homes, I mean, we need to, ha- we need to address proactively vaccine hesitancy. I mean, specifically, when I, when I think about frontline health workers, and I've seen them, you know, and, and seen the type of work that they're doing, I want to remind the listeners that these people have worked through some of the most dangerous conditions uh, through this pandemic. I mean, I'll, I'll just even even tell you, I mean, in the last few weeks, I've heard from some long-term care homes where their frontline health workers are not getting basic PPE supplies. They don't have gowns and gloves. And there's a staffing crisis and a huge staffing shortage across many long-term care homes where people are working double shifts, triple shifts. And, you know, in many circumstances, I mean, for sure, disproportionately in private for-profit long-term care homes, I mean, people don't have, you know, paid sick leave, they don't have decent wages. So there's like issues which tie into vaccine hesitancy here where, you know, these people are feeling sacrificed, they're feeling vulnerable. I mean, just today it's in the news. I mean, yesterday there was a nurse who died in another for-profit long-term care home and, you know, which is extended care Mississauga. So people are actually literally dying and putting their lives out to serve our vulnerable seniors. And if they wanted to get the vaccine and they had a sore arm or a headache for a day or two, which are these minor side effects, they still have to go into work and they don't have paid sick leave. So we need to remove all those barriers as soon as possible. And we need to bring the vaccine into long-term care homes. We need to pay people to, you know, for any time off, they, they need to get the vaccine. We need to pay them if they need time off for vaccine side effects. And we need to make sure that people are getting proper information, which is based in science, which is culturally safe and language specific, preferably when we're talking about frontline health workers led by unions and actual champions within frontline health workers themselves. Dr. Amit Arya has been with us, palliative care physician specializing in long-term care. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Be well. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Let's bring in Tim Gass, president of the Canadian Nurses Association, and talk about everything from uh, vaccine hesitancy to uh, where we are and uh, what it is like to be on the front lines during a global pandemic. Tim Guest is with us, president of the Canadian Nurses Association. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, my pleasure. Happy to be with you. Tim, we touched on this with my last guest who was uh, who, who brought up uh, vaccine hesitancy. Tell us a little bit ab- about it. And for those that may not know, what is vaccine hesitancy? 
Uh, generally, I, I think uh, vaccine hesitancy is where there's uh, individuals that are uh, reluctant to uh, make a decision to be vaccinated. Uh, and it's, it's largely created by um, uh, fear or um, a lack of understanding of uh, the factual information about the, the efficacy and, and the actual kind of uh, side effect profile of, of uh, having the vaccine. How, how do you deal with this, Tim? Um, I mean, obviously, if healthcare workers are concerned, does that, does that uh, allow for much confidence in patients? Yeah, well, I think that uh, the concerns with healthcare workers is not widespread. Uh, in, 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 from what we're hearing uh, from uh, nurses is that uh, uh, nurses like the general public, there's a small cohort of them that are a bit have um, uh, these uh, views of on vaccine that uh, that they hesitate on them. Uh, the vast majority of nurses uh, believe in um, looking at the actual evidence and the science. And uh, as an organization as a, and as a, the, the National uh, Professional Voice for Nursing, uh, we believe that the science is there to suggest that this, these vaccines are safe. They've gone through uh, a regulatory process with Health Canada to approve them. And, uh, and that uh, uh, nurses who've taken the time to uh, learn about uh, these vaccines and, and educate them will be uh, comfortable to, to get them. And, and we're seeing that. We're seeing nurses put their hand up and being the first in line to be able to, to get the vaccine when it's coming around. And so I think they're demonstrating uh, what uh, nurses across the country will do. Uh, what you're saying, Tim, makes perfect sense. Uh, those that are within the Canadian Nurses Association or, or members of are, are members of the public, just like the rest of us have different views, have different opinions uh, and such. But how do you balance this? Um, the, the chat before the vaccine was even available was, should this be mandatory? Of course, it's not. But on the other hand, some occupations... Uh, it, it certainly is a, a vital part of their uh, of uh, what they what is needed to protect themselves. So, how do you balance this? How do you how do you manage this? Yeah, I think it's it's needing to keep the conversation going. Um, as a as a professional association, we need to continue to uh, make available updated information for nurses as we get it. Uh, provide nurses with access to. Uh, anything they need uh, in, to make an informed decision, uh, education, uh, and and to um, equip them with the tools to be able to have these conversations with uh, patients and their families and, and internally for themselves so that they can be an informed decision maker when they, they are uh, needing to make the decision to, to be vaccinated. And, and we, as an organization, strongly encourage all nurses, if they don't have a medical reason why they can't get it, to get it. It does protect them, it protects their families, and it protects those they care for. Uh, Health Canada approval, we remember all the chatter prior to that, uh, and, and many were concerned about the speed at which this was approved. And uh, we've, we've talked many times on this show about uh, just because it was done quickly doesn't mean that all of uh, the process was not completed. This was very different in the sense that all of uh, the information on all of these vaccines was pretty much shared with various health organizations and approved as it was moving forward. Um, is that, do you think, the major concern is that this just happened so quickly? And, and really, at the end of the day, we, we know now that the reason it was so quick was because there was so much collaboration, not because steps were skipped. And I think that's really an important factor. Um, it's gone through the same regulatory process that, that it, it needed to. I think the, what has made the, the timeline for access to these vaccines so quick is for the first time in our history, scientists across the globe have collectively come together on mm -hmm. one topic with one goal in mind. And that was creating a vaccine for this virus. And they worked together. They shared what they learned, um, what worked, what didn't work. And I think it made a huge difference in the timeline for these uh, companies to be able to create these vaccines.
So uh, the, the province announcing hoping to have uh, all long-term care residents in the hotspots vaccinated by uh, January 21st. Uh, how do nurses fit into all of this? Where are they in line for vaccines? What, the average nurse, obviously it depends on where you are, but what can you tell us about that? Certainly nurses that work in direct care will be, um, according to the National Advisory Committee on Immunization and, and um, their recommendations, nurses that work in direct care uh, will be in the first cohorts of individuals who have access uh, to the vaccine. Certainly, they're starting in areas with the highest uh, risk and, and the individuals that are, at, at, that are most at risk of, of uh, getting COVID or being exposed, which makes total sense. And I think nurses will play an active role in, in both providing the vaccines, getting these vaccines into people's arms. And uh, I think they will be uh, lining up to get it when it is their turn. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of uh, uh, chatter at the beginning of this uh, global pandemic about what it was, where it originated from, uh, what do we know about it, how does it spread, uh, and, uh, and and obviously quickly after that it moved uh, the conversation moved to one of survival. How you know how do we protect ourselves from this? How do we move forward? How do we uh, position ourselves for a vaccination, uh, those sorts of questions. Now it is uh, coming around full circle again as we're seeing the end in sight, the beginning of the end anyway, as it has been coined, uh, with the arrival of vaccinations and such. And uh, the World Health Organization is now starting to probe China and how this all started and what happened. And uh, obviously China is seeking to deflect blame for uh, COVID-19. Let's bring in Ben Ross. As well, President Canadian International Council, and is with us now. Ben, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you very much. Yeah, happy New Year, Scott. Happy New Year to you too, as well, Ben. You know, when when this pandemic first started, we didn't know what the heck it was. Everybody was was asking all kinds of questions. Obviously, over time, we've a- answered some of those questions, but it seemed that the talk moved of uh, one of origin and in in what this was to how the heck we survive it and come up with a vaccination to it. Uh, for it, rather. Uh, now we've, we we can see that. We can see the beginning of the end. Uh, is the conversation moving back towards what happened? What do we know so far as to what happened? Well, the uh, overwhelming consensus uh, seems to be that the, uh, that the outbreak began in, uh, in Wuhan. The Chinese uh, government is trying to create a, a rival narrative that it uh, actually came to China from outside from from another country either through some military games that were organized in the in the summer or in an even more implausible uh explanation through some kind of frozen food imports into the into the country um i do think it's really important that the world gets to the bottom uh of the origin of the virus and not really though to um to assign blame to anyone but just to make sure that we're fully equipped to deal with it as it expands and and uh, and grows as uh, new variants come online, and also to be better prepared for the the new pandemic. I mean, this is a failure of many governments, uh, not just China's. Um, and I think it's important here to set aside as much of the geopolitical rivalry and the the politics of this, and just get to the science of how did this happen and how do we prevent it from happening in the future. So far, signs aren't very encouraging that that's the the direction that this uh, that countries like China and and, and others are going to bring to this WHO investigation. Um, shouldn't China be doing the same thing? Uh, it, it appears that in the end, science is incredible and, and has a, a great ability to, to, to go backwards and find out how this all originated. Um, will this not just create more anger around the world towards China by trying to deflect uh, what really happened? Well, ideally, there'd be one single authoritative investigation. There is one that's been launched by the WHO. Uh, unfortunately, China has decided to block WHO officials from traveling to China uh, to conduct their investigation, which I think was a really uh, a really negative move by China and kind of surprising, too, since the WHO is not known for being particularly critical of China. I mean, this is a scientific 
body with uh, um, an apolitical approach uh, to matters. And so the WHO is the right body to actually lead this investigation. Um, and I think we should be we should be encouraging China to, to let the investigators in. If they don't, and China chooses to politicize uh, or to, to, to respond in a sort of political way to this investigation, yeah, they'll be further damaging their reputation. I think China's shown that it doesn't really care about its reputation in the world as it's adopted this new sort of bullying stance. So I think more worry, more in a more worrisome way, they'll be putting their citizens and ours at risk if scientists aren't able to come up with a, a definitive account of how this pathogen spread like wildfire, first through China and then around the world, killing up to, I think it's 1.8 million people, the latest uh, death count that I saw mm. from COVID. I mean, that's where the focus should be, like preventing more, more deaths, not scoring points in a international political popularity contest. Uh, I remember talking to various uh, scientists, uh, academics when this full when this first started, and one in particular that said they they could trace back with SARS and find out exactly where it started, exactly how it spread, and and what the source of that was. And 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 I remember this professor telling me this, and 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 it was just a fascinating uh, discussion. And uh, her response to that was, "Isn't science great?" So are you confident that uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, will get to the bottom of it this time? We remember way back when that there was a lot of hosing down and things being done uh, at the beginning of all of this, so perhaps we wouldn't find the details that we did with SARS. Well, science uh, is also famous for acknowledging when it doesn't know anything definitively, when it just has theories and evidence to lend to the credibility of the theory. So we might not ever get a, a fully 100% guaranteed uh, explanation of uh, um, that convinces everyone about this. But we should be able to get to a level that prompts coordinated policy responses to prevent this from happening last time, uh, next time. Uh, the SARS outbreak in 2003 actually led to this incredible profusion of international agreements to... Uh, to, to better equip the world, and arguably that kept us safe from 17 other years, 17 subsequent years of uh, of pandemics. There was a big outbreak, for example, in 2017 of avian flu that was uh, stopped in its tracks through effective collaboration, ironically enough, between American and uh, Chinese governments at the time. So something's happened between 2017 and 2020, and the breakdown in kind of international policy cooperation um, as politics has started to take over from, uh, to, or to, to dominate over science in um, driving our considerations of, uh, of what we should be doing. That's where I think the, the focus should be, is making sure that it's a science first, not, uh, not a politics first approach, as mm-hmm. the, uh, the Chinese seem to be approaching it. And frankly, the Trump administration as well has put politics ahead of, uh, ahead of the health of citizens and, and, uh, and science. It'll be interesting to see what happens once that administration uh, does change, especially with relations to China. Um, what does China owe the world here? Uh, um, obviously, uh, uh, you know, perception, world perception of this country has greatly changed. It, it wasn't that long ago, just a, a few years ago, that, that China was viewed as the golden goose and everybody was investing in China. And then all of a sudden things went uh, went terribly wrong as, as they moved the other direction as opposed to uh, more towards uh, uh, democracy. Do, what does China owe the world here? Do they owe uh, the, the rest of the world anything on this? You know, I would approach it more from the perspective of um, what does China owe its own citizens? Because every mm-hmm. government's going to operate in defense of its national interests and its citizens. Um, but here, what China owes its citizens and what we owe our citizens and what the United States government owes its citizens are the same, which is to put science first to find out uh, as much as possible about how this and whatever the next pandemic spreads uh, and to uh, and to collaborate. We should be able to appeal to the self-interest of uh, of the Chinese if they are indeed willing to advance the interests of their own citizens. Um, it's it's a, a more feasible basis for international relations. My concern is that uh, the Chinese government seems to be advancing its national pride over the interests of its individual citizens, and that seems to be 
gumming up the works of, of international uh, international cooperation. Um, I do think there's every chance that the next pandemic is going to arise out, you know, some other country. It could happen anywhere. Um, and each one of us, including China, has an, has an interest in making sure that those scientific links are in place and those me- those mechanisms for international cooperation so that we can stop the next pathogen in its tracks and not lose millions of people as we did this time. Uh, again, not to get too political on this, but we certainly know what the last four years has brought under Donald Trump and, and his his need for some reason to attack allies and, and make friends with, with our, fo- our foes and such. Um, now that that administration is changing, will we see allies come together and form a united front uh, in order to to monitor what China's doing? Yes, that seems to be front and center in the foreign policy plans of the new administration with uh, Jake Sullivan, who's the national security director for the incoming Biden administration, already reaching out to other uh, liberal democracies. Um, on trade issues to make sure that there's a, a common approach to the way that China distorts uh, trade and economic relations. And I think we'll see that across the board, including on health cooperation and uh, and other matters. So the Biden administration brings a kind of multilateral uh, sense and uh, preference to how they, how they engage. And so there's going to be plenty of opportunities for Canada to collaborate with other liberal democracies and making sure that we're responding to the challenge of a growing China um, in a in a way that's, that there's a strength in numbers and not uh, allowing the Chinese to divide us and conquer us in the way that they uh, they they would like to do. Hmm. Uh, where is the World Health Organization on China? Many have said that uh, that China has uh, greatly influenced the World Health Organization. How do you feel about them conducting this probe? Well, they've accepted the WHO has accepted the uh, the, the probe in, in the face of vehement opposition by China. So that was uh, a degree of um, so, so the degree of uh, of independence. But like all uh, multilateral bodies. The WHO is a creature of its member states. Um, it, do, they, it doesn't have like a, a sort of separate or autonomous roles. It's a tool being used by various national governments to to further their their goals of, uh, of collaboration. And so the WHO is the tool of China as well as it's the tool of the United States and Canada and Mali and you know Norway and every other country in the world. Um, Canadians, I think, in general, would prefer to see multilateral institutions that have a bit more teeth and that are able to uh, operate a bit more independently of the of the member states. Um, but that's not not likely to happen because uh, as soon as these institutions so show greater independence, they lose their ability to change the decisions or to influence the decisions made by the Chinese government. So. I think so we have what to happens the WHO for for what it is and then just make sure it's got all the resources possible to to do the best job in the circumstances. So could you see the world the World Health Organization coming out with a report after this probe saying, yeah, that's the blame, that's the that's the problem. Here's what we need to fix. Will the, will they present that uh, you know considering they, uh, the influence of the China? The report will be is you know objective and and clear and um, and provide useful policy recommendations. They probably won't use the word blame. That, that wouldn't be the, the natural approach right. for a, from an institution that's, you know, a creature of national governments. Their job is not to, to criticize right. national governments, but I do expect the WHO and its professionalism and its, um, and its track record, uh, to be able to identify what happened, what's happening now and, and what needs to happen in a way that's, that's highly credible. It'll be more effective if it's, Officials are allowed to travel to China, so they have the full information. But, uh, no, I have confidence that WHO is going to do a good job on this. We've certainly heard, uh, again, how this, as you mentioned, uh, started in Wuhan and such. We've since, you know, and there's been allegations of the wet food market, and, and that's what it appears to be. Uh, the evidence is pointing at this time is pointing to at this time. However, there's been chatter about it, it coming from a lab. There's been chatter of it coming from outside of of China, will we get to the will we get the answers to those questions? 
I think we should be uh, we, we should be able to get answers that convince ninety nine percent of uh, of people. There'll always be conspiracy theories, and then there'll always be governments that have an interest in peddling conspiracy theories. The uh, theory that this originated in a lab, for example, has been very thoroughly discredited. Yeah, uh, I don't know of any any serious expert that advances that, and yet because that falls in uh, the Trump administration's political agenda of blaming the Chinese uh, government for the pandemic rather than actually focusing on keeping their citizens safe and uh, distributing the vaccine as quickly as possible. The Trump administration itself keeps recirculating this theory. And so, you know, in an age of social media with uh, all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories, there will always be some rival accounts of where this pandemic really started. And, uh, it will be incumbent not only on organizations like WHO to do the most thorough job possible of of explaining and documenting where it came from, but there's also a responsibility of all of us to express some skepticism when you see the wilder conspiracy theories and to um, and to inform ourselves from expert sources so that we can take reasonable judgments about uh, about this. And the WHO is going to be a credible source of uh, of analysis on. Where the are you su- started and how we can how we can put it into it? Are you surprised, Ben, at where the relationship with China has gone? I mean, as I said, uh, you know, ten twenty years, it was all about uh, opening up and 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 you know, even when when uh, Hong Kong went back to uh, to China, many thought that uh, that uh, China would become more like Hong Kong as opposed to vice versa. Um, are you surprised at where we are in twenty twenty one? with the relationship well, because even a few years ago it was completely different yes it has changed quite dramatically in the larger sweep of things like if you look at this historically whenever there's been a rising power uh whether it was you know germany in the late 19th century uh the united states before that there's always some uh potential for changing power relations to make a lot of people nervous and for those that uh, don't have uh, maybe those of the, of the declining power uh, to view the the newcomer with a lot of suspicion. That's where the role of leadership becomes absolutely essential. So, um, a rising United States led by presidents like Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, who bent over backwards to uh, exercise Canadian power in a way that helped other countries to the extent possible, forming the League of Nations and the UN, and sort of framing things in terms of collective interest, make an absolute difference. Xi Jinping um, has shown appalling leadership in that sense, in that he has missed almost every opportunity to uh, frame China's rise as something that would be beneficial to other countries and to create uh, a sense of kind of win-win uh, scenarios for, for China and the rest of the world by openly embracing ingre- aggression, by committing terrible abuses of it against his own people in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, um, and through this, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy, we're hearing just the, the highly unprofessional, quite annoying statements that Chinese ambassadors around the world have been saying, attacking their host governments and, and others. They, uh, what we're seeing is really a, a, a dramatic and historic failure of leadership that can be attributed to, uh, to Xi Jinping. Unfortunately, how is that, how is that playing in China? Well, under Xi Jinping, there's been a, Remarkable slowdown in economic growth um, compared to his predecessors. Uh, there's, there's been a tremendous centralization of power inside China as well. It's not a China's never been a democracy, but it was more of a collective leadership dynamic before mm-hmm. Xi Jinping, and it's under him it's become very much a one-person dictatorship. And so there are some misgivings within China, but I think there's also uh, a lot of Chinese people that feel um, a sense of national pride, of nationalism, um, and think that this is, you know, their moment, their country's moment to, to shine. And, and, uh, and I know Xi Jinping appeals to that sense of, uh, sense of nationalism. So there would be many Chinese people that would disagree with my, uh, my characterization about his lack of leadership. But I think if it, looking at this from a Canadian perspective, we've had plenty to complain about President Trump's leadership in the United States these mm-hmm. last four years. The difference, of course, between 
the United States and China is one of them is a democracy. And so even if as disastrous a leader as Donald Trump, he'll be gone in a few weeks. And uh, that's not going to be the case for Xi Jinping. He's going to be around for years and years to come. So where do you see this going, Ben, considering where we are now, how this story has changed, and now we have a different administration, as we talked earlier, in the United States. We will see the allies uh, strengthen a bit. Where do you see this this relationship going? And it's it's really China, Canada, it's China, the United, it's China and the rest of the world. Where do you see this going? Well, this is where there's a, a challenge and an opportunity, I think, for leadership on our side. Uh, yes. China brings a more belligerent and aggressive approach to international affairs. And yes, countering that with, uh, you know, the good company of several liberal democracies so that we can um, have some strength in numbers will help. Uh, But if we focus entirely on confrontation, we will be not, uh, we'll be doing ourselves a disservice. There needs, there is far greater integration economically, for example, between China and the West than there ever was between, say, the Soviet Union and the West in the Cold War. Uh, and so that, that race to kind of embrace Cold War thinking um, will come at some very serious costs. And so Canada and its fellow liberal democracies need to approach this relationship strategically and with a lot of nuance, showing the strength that numbers will give it if we, uh, if we approach them collectively. Um, but also framing issues in a way that there's some potential wins for China or, or some collective wins between us and uh, and the Chinese so that we can rebalance the relationship without sending it inevitably down a, a path of ever-increasing mm. confrontation. And, you know, really a pandemic should be a great subject or topic around which to frame a common interest because we all have citizens that are yeah. dying from this disease. It's a single pathogen that can be... Um, dealt with with the same kind of medicines from one country to the next. There's no reason why Canada, the United States, China, and other countries would not approach this with the sense that we're all in this together. We've got a common foe here in this uh, in this terrible disease, and we should be collaborating on that. We should be looking for whichever areas like that where we can collaborate in addition to then uh, standing up for our interests where they might clash on issues well said. of human rights or democracy. Ben Roswell has been with us, President Canadian International Council, uh, who the WHO, World Health Organization, uh, starting to probe uh, uh, China's role in the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Ben, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks as always. Bye now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move down to uh, the United States. Uh, Obviously, lots going on there as uh, two Georgia Senate seats are up for grabs. What this means is... Uh, and why this election uh, seems to be never-ending is once Donald Trump, of course, lost the election, uh, the focus then moved to these two seats in Georgia, these two Senate seats. And what happens is if the Democrats win those two uh, Senate seats, that means they'll have a majority in the House and in the Senate, which will allow them to pass uh, things much more easily with uh, the vice president having having the tie-breaking vote. So that's why this uh, election in the Senate election in Georgia is so important right now and uh, so important that Donald Trump has uh, actually held a rally in Washington in regard to this. Uh, Also, uh, earlier in Georgia this week, uh, trying to drum up support for the Republican governors there. Here's what uh, Donald Trump had to say uh, earlier at his rally in Washington. This year, using the pretext of the China virus and the scam of mail-in ballots, Democrats attempted the most brazen and outrageous election theft, and there's never been anything like this. It's a pure theft in American history. Everybody knows it. That election, our election, was over at 10 o'clock in the evening. We're leading Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, by hundreds of thousands of votes. And then late in the evening or early in the morning, boom, these explosions of bullshit. Wow. 
Uh, when all this, uh, the vote, the vote for president has, is in the process of being, uh, uh, counted and such, and Vice President Pence will have a role in that. Uh, that being said, um, as the president has tried in the past, uh, he's hoping that some sort of thing can be done to somehow, uh, change the course of, of, of history here. Here's what the president had to say about the vice president. People. And we're going to have to fight much harder. And Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. Because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. Now it is up to... All right, and uh, that Constitution has allowed for three uh, counts in uh, the state of Georgia. The first one uh, on the election day, the second one being a recount, and the third one, uh, which was paid for by uh, Donald Trump's campaign. So three times the votes have been counted in Georgia. So I'm not sure what else you can do to exercise all of those options. Let's bring in Dr. Graham Dodds, professor and associate chair with the Department of Political Science, Concordia University, and is with us now. Uh, Graham, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. Happy to talk with you. Uh, your thoughts on uh, this speech today and, and where America finds itself today on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, God forbid U.S. politics be uh, out of the headlines for more than a few weeks, right? Uh, here we are in January, and uh, it's, it's the CNN election desk as if uh, nothing has changed since November. It's a big day uh, for the U.S., and there's sort of two things we should uh, keep uh, separate. There are these uh, two Senate races in Georgia uh, voting yesterday, the results coming in now, and it seems, as you've said, the Democrats will win both of those. And then separately, uh, this is when uh, the sort of final uh, bit of the U.S. presidential election is actually decided. It's a, usually a ceremonial thing where uh, a joint session of Congress sort of gavels into finality the uh, the results of the November election. And both of those things are happening in, uh, uh, well, in D.C. and in Georgia as we speak. So let's talk about the Senate races. Um, where are we now with confirmation on on the vote count? On, I understand one has been uh, officially elected, but are, are we sure about the second? Right. So uh, each of the 50 states, of course, has two senators. Uh, Georgia has this odd state rule where you have to have a majority. The winner's got to be above 50 percent, and uh, that didn't happen in November, so they had this runoff yesterday. One of those is apparently uh, called by all the the news outlets, uh, I guess because the margin of victory is beyond the number of uh, uh, votes that still are outstanding, and that is uh, uh, Raphael Warnock. Uh, has defeated the incumbent Kelly Loeffler. The other, the second race, um, uh, the, the Democrat there is up as well. John Ossoff, it seems, is going to beat uh, David Perdue, um, but I guess his margin of victory is still small enough such that if all the uh, few thousand remaining votes were to come in the other way, it could turn things. But, I mean, the writing's on the wall. It does seem that Democrats are going to win both of those seats, uh, uh, the Senate uh, seats from Georgia, meaning that the U.S. Senate will be tied. There will be 50 Republican senators and 50 Democratic senators. And in such a situation, the so-called president of the Senate, who happens to be the new vice president, um, gets to cast a tie-breaking vote. So uh, VP-to-be uh, Kamala Harris will give control of the Senate to uh, Democrats. What about uh, Donald Trump mentioning uh, Vice President Mike Pence the way he has in, 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 in putting pressure on him to do the right thing, whatever that means? Um, what's going to happen when the vice president, you know, just like Joe Biden did last time, declares the new president the winner? I mean, is, is there anything he can do? Is there any option no, there? No, no. I mean, the, this outcome has been clear for some time now. There is nothing he can do. Uh, if he had no scruples, he might try to do something, and the man he works for is trying to get him to do just that. Um, but I think uh, uh, Mr. Pence can uh, you know, marshal uh, uh, a little bit of dignity and uh, decorum and, and do what he is supposed to do, which is nothing. Um, so, you know, why is Trump doing this? 
I, it's a, I, honestly, I, trying to make sense of this president the last four years is often a fool's errand. Uh, often mm. there is no uh, ulterior strategy that's sort of, uh, he's not playing 3D chess, he's just playing crazy. And I think that's what this is. I mean, you can say uh, he can't take no for an answer, he can't stomach losing, it's all about him, so he has to make somebody else accountable, so he has to pretend the game was fixed and try to convince people of it. Or now uh, sort of put it all on Pence such that going forward Trump could say, no, I won, it was just Mike Pence didn't come through. Um, I honestly don't know what's going on with this. I mean, if, if there, insofar as there is a rationale, I suppose it's Trump trying to uh, maintain some political power going forward where uh, in the years to come he can still be something of a kin, kingmaker in the Republican Party and still have some, uh, some say and still uh, find himself near the headlines, which he, uh, he very much likes to be. Where will this leave Mike Pence? Is he about to become the next public enemy number one as far as the base is concerned? Uh, I would think so. I mean, you know, he, he might try to say something nice about Trump uh, in this business going on at Capitol Hill today, and maybe that will uh, save him the, the worst parts of Trump's wrath. Um, but uh, odds are, uh, at the end of today, uh, that, uh, yeah, Pence is going to be a bad guy. Trump will rail against him and everybody else going forward. But uh, in the broader um, context, I think there is something of a civil war going on in the Republican Party right now. Uh, most Republicans don't buy the BS line that uh, this thing was stolen. They recognize that they lost. And, you know, when your side loses, you're sore about it, but usually you can <laughs> look the world in the eye and accept reality and move on after a time. Um, so there are those Republicans and there are others who, you know, believe this stuff. So it, it, I think we're going to see this today in the debates, in the, especially in the Senate side, but also in the U.S. House about uh, within the Republican Party, you know, is this just something to do to show our displeasure, something to do to stay on Trump's good side? Um, or, uh, you know, can we rise above this? And uh, this is supposed to be a sort of celebration of democracy, not um, – this isn't contested. It's supposed to be like, well, we've all done everything, and, you know, we're part of this great country, and we love this democratic tradition, and we're not getting a lot of that today. It's a lot of this uh, crazy stuff. So um, I, Pence will have to see how it plays out. But, again, I think there is this sort of tension, if not a civil war, in the Republican Party. Uh, and going forward, uh, you'll have people on either side. How concerned are you what this does for democracy? We're just looking at a live feed right now of uh, Trump supporters protesting on the steps of the Capitol building, and uh, it's it, it's getting pretty wild. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen reports what is that a this... couple of the buildings have been shut down. There's been a bomb threat. Uh, I mean, these are folks who were listening to Trump by the White House, and they marched down Pennsylvania Avenue to try to yeah. storm the U.S. Capitol building and prevent um, Pence from gaveling into finality Trump's loss at the hands of Joe Biden. Uh, this is not a good thing. Uh, I mean, you know, protest is all fine and good, but uh, at the end of the day, you have to say, uh, I believe in democracy, I'm angry my side lost, but c'est la vie, you know, win to fight another day, uh, live to fight another day, rather. Um, this is not, I think, uh, healthy for the Republican Party and certainly for American democracy going forward. I mean, if it becomes the norm that every election is contested, if there's a scintilla of a chance that you're, you could somehow rig the system to, to get your guy to prevail, that, that's not a good thing. That's not how this is supposed to work. How can, when we're watching what we're watching now, uh, this all started with Donald Trump's rally? I mean, was this, and again, you know, I'm asking you to think for this guy, um, but obviously this was bound to happen. He's trying to get a whole pile of people to march on the steps. We're just getting information now. The U.S. Capitol is now on lockdown. And as you mentioned, the, the building shut down. Uh, and it, it looks, um, it, it, it doesn't look positive. Uh, is there any way for, a, for Biden or his administration to, uh, to somehow regain the, the, the trust of, uh, for America in its institutions? Uh, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, is this America great again? I mean, my goodness, yeah. these were this is the country that you fight hard and then you you, you go back to your corner and you unite. I mean, this yeah, is not what we're seeing to today. Um, this is a big question. I mean, how does America get back to normal? How does America de-Trumpify itself, de-crazify itself, uh, reacquaint itself with facts, at least the half of the country that has lost that connection? And it's a big question. I mean, having a new president who is himself uh, well-connected to reality and, and rational is 
a piece of that. It's a first step. It's a big part, but it is only part. Um, it's going to take a lot of hard work to de-Trumpify the United States. And people are conflicted about how to do it. I mean, after you sort of win the elections, and the, the Democrats have, they will have united power now with the House, Senate, and the presidency. But beyond that, what do you do with the tens of millions of Americans, Trump supporters, who have bought this stuff that, uh, you know, <laughs> they think the world is flat. They think that what is not true is and vice versa. I, I don't know what you do with that. Um, I really don't. Uh, I think uh, Biden's a good guy for it. He is uh, likable, even-headed. He's unflappable. He doesn't get angry. Uh, were I in his shoes, I would probably lash out, given some of the crazy stuff we're seeing on TV right now. But uh, I don't happen to be president at the moment. So um, it's a big question. I don't know. I really don't know. It's a big challenge, though. It's not enough just to say the second Biden is inaugurated, America will no longer be crazy. We'll go back to being normal. I think it's going to be a longer, tougher road than that. Here is uh, another clip of uh, Donald Trump at his rally today in Washington. They said, sir, in four years, you're guaranteed. I said, I'm not interested right now. Do me a favor. Go back eight weeks. I want to go back eight weeks. Let's go back eight weeks. We want to go back and we want to get this right. Because we're going to have somebody in there that should not be in there, and our country will be destroyed, and we're not going to stand for that. Uh, it appears at times, um, Graham, and, and, and you know, I, I don't want to be too critical, but he just doesn't seem to make sense. Um, how, how do even his base or the people we're watching on, on the U.S. Capitol steps now, uh, how do they square the circle when, for example, the, the, the election in Georgia was counted three times? Like, yeah. what do you do to, you, I mean, it reminds me of a sports analogy. And, you know, Americans love their sports. They love their teams. But at the end of the day, whatever team wins is the team that wins. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, there was a Stanley Cup where there was a question of did the player have his foot in the crease and therefore should the yeah. cup count? Does that cup have an asterisk by it? I mean, uh, yeah. you know, people who want to be real hardcore partisans and conspiracy theorists will believe whatever they want and never accept something. But it really doesn't matter if they accept it. I mean, a lot of Democrats did not accept George W. Bush as legitimate uh, when he lost the election but won the Electoral College against Al Gore in 2000, courtesy of the Florida mess, if we think back two decades. Uh, mm -hmm. But it didn't matter. Bush was president whether they liked it or not. I mean, if you're asking, you know, what is going on inside the heads of the people trying to storm the U.S. Capitol right now, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. I think they inhabit a different world than the one that I inhabit, and uh, I think theirs is not based on facts. And, you know, this old slogan, you're entitled to your views but not your facts, um, I don't know. I don't know how you get to someone who is that crazy that they believe President Trump did not lose by 7 million votes at the the election was stolen from him, and the, the only thing to do is to storm the seat of government. It's, it's unthinkable. It, it does not make any sense. So I, I don't think there's a, a difference in ideology or worldview that could bring one to, to that point. I, it's, it's almost at the level of uh, mental illness, to be perfectly honest. You know, I, I keep coming back to that. I, you know, I, I really do. I, I keep coming back to that, Graham. Anyway, um, as you mentioned, it, it certainly isn't uh, the first U.S. election where there's been conflict, not this, the first U.S. election where there, there hasn't been debate over the result. But as you mentioned, once it's done, it's done, and America the Great uh, continues to function. What do you think is going to happen after January? Uh, 20th and inauguration and, and such do you because obviously donald trump still has a lot of supporters out there um do you think this movement this momentum is going to continue or it's just it's going to peter out and it is what it is uh it, it's almost hard to imagine a world where donald trump is not forcing himself into the headlines one way or another he's excellent at it he enjoys it he lives for it it will be harder for him to do that when he is no longer president and when his party is uh, in, not in a majority anywhere except the Supreme Court. Um, but I, I just don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to see Trump really mounting a rear guard effort to uh, win back uh, both chambers of Congress in the next couple years and then perhaps make a run at the uh, presidency again in four years. I just don't see that happening. Um, but, you know, I've been wrong about my predictions regarding Trump, as have so many other people before, so I'm reluctant to kind of put much uh, <laughs> confidence in that. I, I just don't know. Um, uh, Biden's going to have a hell of a, work to, hell of a lot of work to do just to get back to anything approaching normal. Um, again, he's a level-headed, uh, unflappable sort of person. I think that will help. 
does this mean that every day for the next four years, Trump is going to get on and tweet and have a sort of uh, uh, you know, a debate, a running debate with Biden and the Democrats? I don't think so. I don't think he can sustain that kind of attention, to be perfectly honest. Um, but we shall see. Uh, I'm just watching uh, live footage of the Capitol building, and it looks like riot police uh, have just arrived. So uh, hopefully this will be resolved in, in a uh, peaceful fashion. Um, where do you think this leaves uh, the Republican Party? I mean, you, you talked about uh, the divisiveness, the civil war. I think the word you use between uh, within rather the the Republican Party. How do they do, do they go with more Donald Trump? The next candidate that we see from the Republican Party, will it be a Donald Trump light? Will it be a, a modified version or is this era gone? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question, and uh, I don't have a clear answer, sorry to tell you. but uh, I, I don't think there's any answers to any of the questions no, I've asked, well, Graham, so feel you. free. Feel better there, thank you. Uh, no, it's a toughie, and I mean, as to what Trump is going to do, that's going to in part depend on this question of a civil war in the Republican Party. I mean, I think a lot of the people who in Congress are going along with Trump's crazy story today are doing it because they feel if they don't, then Trump will encourage a Trumper to uh, go against them in a primary election in two years, and they don't want to face that. Um, I don't know if in two years Trump is going to have that much mojo, as it were, um, but he might. And obviously some of these people, um, they're not all crazy. Some of them do have intelligent thoughts, and they're thinking, I have to at least pretend to go along with this, or or he's going to put someone up against me. Um, So that's part of their calculation. Um, I, I don't know if there's much a market on the other side for a Republican to step forward and say, you know, this is the party of Abraham Lincoln. I believe, in fact, uh, t- Trump was bad for our party, bad for our country. We've got to find a new way forward. Um, I can see a logic to that, but I just don't hear a lot of elected Republicans so far saying those kind of words. Now, after crowds stormed the U.S. Capitol today, maybe some will find the courage to call that out. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the big stories of the last four years have been so few Republicans willing to say anything critical about Donald Trump at all. Uh, most of them who have uh, no longer hold elected uh, office. I mean, John McCain's passed away, and there are a couple other senators, but that's really about it. He has really um, had the Republican Party in the, the under the under his thumb. And uh, going forward, I can't think that's going to last forever. But who knows? All right, uh, Dr. Graham Dodds has been with us, professor and associate chair with the Department of Political Science at Concordia University. Graham, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks so much. Just monitoring uh, what is happening in Washington, D.C. The U.S. Capitol is now on lockdown. The Capitol building uh, is uh, now being occupied, I guess, uh, surrounded by uh, the people, some of the people that were involved in the uh, pro-Trump rally. Now we are seeing uh, slowly uh, uh, anti-riot uh, squads, I guess, uh, start to gather and uh, it'll be fascinating to see how this uh, unfolds as uh, Donald Trump has whipped uh, a couple of thousand people into a frenzy, and they are now uh, on the steps of the Capitol building. This is where the Senate meets. Apparently the Senate uh, has been evacuated, uh, therefore that vote will be delayed even more. And uh, Vice President Mike Pence has been escorted out of the building uh, for security reasons, so we'll keep an eye on that as, uh, as uh, time progresses. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.